This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we are very fortunate to have the opportunity to talk about a very difficult but absolutely vital topic for understanding the history of society, history of modern Western society in particular, and uh, the past and future of democracy. Uh, This is the topic of the Holocaust. And in particular, we're going to talk about Auschwitz-Birkenau, one of the most notorious and deadly of the uh, many concentration and extermination camps uh, that were built by the Nazi regime during World War II. We are joined today uh, by Pavel Sawiski, who is the Press and Public Relations Officer at Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum in Poland. Uh, We had the chance to meet him this summer when we paid a visit to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And I will say that the uh, four to five hours we spent with Pavel are 45 hours I think we will never, never forget. Uh, Pavel, thank you for joining us today. Hello, and thank you very much for this invitation. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Pavel Sawiski, we have, of course, our uh, scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Zachary, what's the title of your poem? Neue Synagoge Oranienburgerstrafe. Okay, you're just showing off your German these days, aren't you? (laughs) What does that title mean? It is the new synagogue in Berlin. It was the last one uh, to be built, or the, maybe not the last one, but it was the center of the Berlin Jewish community before the war. It's this very grand Moorish building. It's really a symbol of of the success of of Jews in in the Berlin Jewish community. And it's also a, today it houses a small Jewish museum. Most of the building is still in ruins. that I visited uh, soon after we, we left Poland. Okay, let's hear your poem. The doors we built opened onto the street. The dome we built lifted all eyes to the heavens, where in the red steel airplanes we built, they rehearsed for us the great destruction. 2,000 of us killed ourselves so as not to be burnt to ash and sent up into the clouds like soot. For then there were no brave policemen left to call the fire brigades and beg for water. They say, after the war, the trees grew straight through the windows out of the wet cinders. Two thousand blades of grass surround the pond where we or our mothers lie. No, the graves are unmarked, the landscape too indifferent, the people hardly less so, and out of our thousand, thousand lives, little more than a fading memory, a single pond, a marsh, a puddle there in the fields of grass. 2023, and the sanctuary of our prayers still lies in ruins, a field of gravel, an altar of black marble, an open-air epitaph looming at the windows where they rehearse the same routine and practice their same poetic hate, where purple flowers bloom in clods of soil by the artificial pond where they walk their dogs. Or perhaps in the same windows are candles lit again, and if you can lean back, you see the fires on the horizon smothered before us into a wonderful 
sunset. Mm. That's a very strong visual you're creating with that poem, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is about how the scars, not just of war, but of, of genocide uh, in Europe, remain uh, in our lives and, and how they, they shape the world that we see today and how so many of those wounds, even though the participants uh, and the victims, have, have many have, have unfortunately passed away or been murdered, uh, there remain uh, deep wounds mm-hmm. that we have not addressed and, and deep scars. And that as much as we like to think uh, that, that the hate that, that sparked uh, this, this horrific violence um, has disappeared, it remains in ways that are uncomfortable to recognize, yes. but, but we must recognize. Yes, yes, yes. Pavel, I think that's a perfect theme to turn to you on. You spend so much of your time thinking about these issues. Why do you think it's so important to study the the Holocaust and to visit sites like Auschwitz-Birkenau? Visit to the authentic sites is, of course, important on many levels. And this is a history lesson, of course. But there is always something different when you come to a place where history happened. There is this um, level of, uh, of something beyond just facts and history. It is very often metaphysical journey that uh, you are standing in the place where history happened. And, and the Auschwitz Memorial is a place where, where indeed people come and people can walk through the same streets, see the buildings where this tragedy happened, can look at the ruins of gas chambers and crematoria and the authenticity of the, of the site that survived, even with all the destruction and a lot of the destruction uh, were made by the perpetrators who tried to erase the uh, evidence of their crimes. Um, but still, you can understand what happened at almost every spot. And when you link it with the historical photographs, with the testimonies of survivors, the, the site affects uh, a person on, on many levels. And um, if you ask why it is important to study it, um, Holocaust and the human tragedy of Auschwitz is important to us as humanity, I believe. And without this belief, I don't think I would be able to spend almost 16 years working at the, at the memorial because we touched there something that is fundamental about humanity, unfortunately very negative things. Something that was already uh, brought up here, the ideology, the scar, uh, it is all there and Auschwitz is a warning. And from uh, my perspective as an educator, but also our perspective as the memorial that preserves the sites and educate people about the tragic story of, of all the victims, commemorating the victims, it is essential to go beyond just the facts and statistics. Because, of course, we, we need to learn the facts. We need to learn the dates. Auschwitz starts in spring of 1940 as a concentration camp targeting mainly Polish intelligentsia, and it's it's simply an element of uh, the terror system that Nazi Germany uh, launches in occupied Poland. But then the camp goes through all these stages and transformations, targeting 
many different groups of people and uh, like Soviet prisoners of war, for example, and Roma and Sinti. And then in spring of 1942, step by step, it uh, transforms itself in a, in a sim simultaneously working extermination center against the uh, basically Jewish uh, people from all around occupied Europe and most of the victims were murdered in gas chambers and then the, the camp is liberated by the Soviet uh, soldiers in, in January 1945. So we have this chronology that is very complex and, and complicated. But uh, what what I think is uh, kind of above all this is first of all to learn why it happened, why uh, Germany as a country transported itself and why people uh, in Germany accepted uh, the, the Nazi party and the policy and how the election system allowed the Nazis to grasp power. And then a totalitarian state is born, how a totalitarian state can, um, can enforce the ideology on numerous groups of society in uh, something that seemed to be a uh, you know, after all the problems after the Great War, but a democratic state and how democracy slowly loses to a totalitarian regime and, and finally how this ideology starts targeting uh, many different groups of people and, of course, anti-Semitism is the core of this ideology. So there there is a level of remembrance, awareness, but something that is the most challenging uh, for us all is what it means for us today why Auschwitz is a warning. Uh, why should we look at the story and understand that while this huge tragedy happened in Auschwitz and we can see the ruins of the gas chambers and we can see how people were murdered, we need to understand while we walk through the space that uh, gas chambers were only at the end of the long process of uh, creating ideology, put turning ideology into words, turning these words into uh, a political party program, and finally this ideology takes over the power of the state. And uh, we uh, look at the, those ruins, uh, at the uh, Auschwitz Memorial, and something that is very challenging to us is to understand that these ideologies didn't disappear. We are not looking at the remains of Auschwitz as an some kind of anthro anthropological surprise, that we are surprised when we stand and face uh, the ruins of the gas chambers or or a place of the selection that, uh, you know, something happened eight years ago and we are so surprised because nothing like this can happen in the world we live today. But, but unfortunately, all those ideologies that led to that catastrophe in human story and also, unfortunately, other genocides because Holocaust wasn't the first and wasn't the last genocide in our story, that all those ideologies exist today. And we are in the position, many of us are in the position of being bystanders to uh, yes. these ideologies yes. in uh, our countries, in the world, with all this modern communication that we have when it becomes almost, um, you know, at, at, at the very second when things happen, we start getting information, which th there is a difference, of course, when we look at the 1940s and the start of the Second World War. And what is our human moral responsibility in the world um, when we are bystanders of this. Because as today, people ask this question about bystanders during the Holocaust, uh, countries that saw what was happening in, uh, uh, in Europe controlled by Nazi Germany, occupied by Nazi Germany. And sometimes people ask question why more was not done, why the camps weren't bombed, and ask all those questions. We need to understand that 
when if we ask that question today, someone else will ask another question about us today. What did we do in uh, 2023 when we witnessed uh, the results of such hateful ideologies? Probably, why didn't we do more? So the, yeah. the story of Auschwitz is a warning and is a call for something that we call this moral responsibility for another human being as bystanders today. Pavel, one of the um, things that struck me so so strongly when when we walked through um, the the museum and the camp, and when we we discussed this uh, in Poland uh, a, a month ago, uh, was uh, how little resistance there was. Not just the bystanders, those who watched this occur, uh, but those who participated actively. Um, thousands of soldiers. Um, and thousands of doctors and others. And um, you made the point that, that in most cases, people didn't just follow orders, they, they, they participated actively, um, those who were in positions to, uh, to do that. Um, what, do we, what do we take from that? Because I think as historians, sometimes we, we give a lot of emphasis to the resistance, to the dissidents, and we all like to think that we would be a dissident, that we would, if we were sent to run a camp, like this by our own government that we would say no, um, or if we were a doctor that we would refuse to be the person choosing who lives and who dies. But but clearly there were very few examples of that. So how do you react to that very disturbing historical evidence? It is a very complex question because of course, uh, asking ourselves what would we do in that situation is maybe very tempting, but also uh, it is some kind of a trap because understanding complexities of the world in the past and of the world that is outside our um, intellectual scope, because we, we, of course, talk about hypothetical information is very challenging. But here, what I think is the crucial element to understand when we talk about Auschwitz, when we talk about Nazi Germany uh, at that time, but also when we talk about any other uh, cases of genocide in our human story, is that genocide didn't happen without the structure of the state. And the power of the state and the trust in the state that we usually have is something that we need to take into consideration. That perpetrators of the genocide, first of all, believe in the ideology, but this ideology is taken over by the state and becomes a policy of the state. And it is, while probably it would be much easier to resist to occupiers, to some uh, guerrillas who force us to do so, it is probably much more difficult to build this type of moral resistance to your own country. And this is what happened in Nazi Germany. And another thing we need to remember is that it didn't start with killing. Uh, this ideology sliced, you know, slice after slice took over people's freedom took over institutions, took over the way people thought, took over media, took over uh, actually every aspect of social life in Nazi Germany. The, the term that is sometimes uh, used when we talk about the social history of Nazi Germany is Gleichheitung, which means every aspect of the functioning of, the, of social life had to, be, had to become part of the political life, that everything became... Uh, Nazi fight, when there, when there was a knitting organization, association, it became a Nazi 
association. When people were collecting stamps, it became a Nazi collecting stamp association. But the same happened with universities. The same happened with research institutes, with uh, legal professions. And the Nazi regime did everything to step-by-step take over people's minds and poison people with this disease, with this poisonous ideology. And this is something we also need to analyze, that um, it's maybe tempting to say we would resist, but um, we need to understand that this is a process that lasted very long time. Some people managed to escape before it became genocide. Uh, but uh, when uh, the, the system already grew to the position of being this uh, horrible, monstrous creature, unfortunately run and created by people, um, that for many it was too late. And another thing that we also can see when we look at the perpetrators is that perpetrators very often were responsible for a, a tiny little element of the entire process of genocide. And it's also much easier to rationalize it when the state tells you that this is okay, that the ideology explains you that Jews are not human beings and we are simply doing the world a favor when we try to get rid of the Jews. But also very few people are engaged in the last stage of the process in killing. But there is the whole state apparatus, uh, administration, bureaucracy, uh, rail lines, uh, police, different units, uh, post offices, and so on and so on. And the in this case, responsibility is somehow dissolved and people do not see themselves as uh, perpetrators, but they're simply doing part of the administrative process that is ordered, that is approved by the state that we trust. And, and here are the very complex circumstances we need to think about, not only concentrating on the last stage and relatively uh, a little group of people that pull the trigger, that put cyclone B into the gas chambers. Of course, the Auschwitz as an institution was a big camp and in the peak moment, there were over 4,000 people managing the, the camp. And these were the SS men, but also not all of those SS were directly responsible for the killing and this kind of dissolving responsibility connected with the the power of uniforms and one homogenic group and there were different researchers historians and psychologists studying the the power of a uniform uh, the power of uh, uh, your brothers in arms that you will not fail even if you do not feel comfortable uh, obeying some of the orders you will not f fail your your colleagues your friends who are with you that there are so many different aspects of social political and uh, but also this kind of uh, human connections that um, made uh, it possible but in a very long period of time it, it it never happens overnight i'm sure another question that you get quite often from from visitors and from school children <clears throat> in particular i would imagine is uh, what did the people living near Auschwitz, those who, who must have known what was going on, if not the details, at least the scale of the violence going on at Auschwitz, what did they do? And how did the process of memory uh, and, and memorializing the millions who were killed at Auschwitz uh, begin after the end of the war, when there were few victims uh, left to remember crimes, uh, and when it was left largely on the shoulders of, of those who remained. 
in the area to remember. You ask two different and two very complex questions. Uh, first of all, to understand the local context of the creation of Auschwitz, we need to remember that this part of occupied Poland was directly annexed into the Third Reich. And uh, Poland, Germans divided Poland into two parts. One part they annexed, and this really, this indeed became uh, Germany from their point of view. And the second part was the general government, kind of a protectorate colony structure where the uh, situation was uh, much different in every regard. And generally speaking, the development of Auschwitz gradually destroys the local life because Poles are uh, expelled uh, from the town of Oświęcim because the uh, IG Farben starts building a new factory uh, near the town. So uh, the uh, apartments are needed uh, and there is a gradual destruction of this uh, uh, life over there. But also the creation of Auschwitz means at some point, creation of Interessengebiet, the, inter the zone of interest, which finally was 40 square kilometers of territory that was surrounded the two main parts of Auschwitz, Auschwitz I and Auschwitz II Birkenau, and uh, several thousand Polish people were brutally expelled from there in a very short time in spring of 1941. So basically, there are no bystanders very close to the camp. There are bystanders outside of this zone of interest, people who have their own... Uh, challenges because of the annexation. Their crops are stolen, people are taken to forced labor, uh, and many, many other uh, difficult things are happening to those people, but they are not imprisoned in a concentration camp. And uh, the, the part of the historical process that we study is that people are curious, and they knew that the camp is near. They could observe from, for example, from their fields. They could observe prisoners working in the fields few hundred meters away. Of course, they couldn't enter into this area because there were plaques saying that this is uh, dangerous and they risk their lives. But they were curious who were those people. At some point during the story of Auschwitz, prisoners were walking from Auschwitz I to the IG Farben building site through the town. And again, local people could see prisoners who were guarded. You couldn't approach them. But this caused questions. And we can see that from, from the very beginning of the camp, that there was an attempt of doing something. Even in very early stages, uh, in uh, late 1940, just a few months after the camp was created, local parishes asked, started asking questions to the German occupiers whether it would be possible to, uh, to send Christmas um, gifts or packages to the prisoners because at that time most of the prisoners were uh, Poles and most of them were Catholics and actually the, the camp refused the request to organize a mass for Christmas but they allowed sending packages but what, what, what is uh, very interesting for me as, a, as an educator also as a former journal, journalist because I was interested in this uh, topic I made a, a, a small documentary movie where the the local people in villages who were living outside of the zone of interest, sometimes few kilometers away, and they stood, uh, they faced this challenge of of responsibility, and we actually know about over twelve hundred people. Sometimes the numbers are uh, that that are given are around fifteen hundred people in different places near the camp, mainly uh, in villages, so rural uh, areas but also in several towns where some of the subcamps were created, some of the coal miners who worked in the, in the coal mines. And these were people, many of them, uh, which again is uh, important in the context of occupation, many of them were uh, women and girls, 
people need to understand that in the annexed territories, men were ordered to work. And so any man between the age of, I think, 16 and 40 something had to work. So uh, if men were walking around during the day, it was suspicious. For women, it was much easier, especially for teenage girls. And this co th these communities started organizing help uh, for prisoners. And something that was very intriguing when I spoke to those people is that no underground, no resistance came there and said, you, you and you will be responsible to do something. They started organizing teams themselves, collecting food in villages and then at night smuggling to the uh, territory of the camp, of course, leaving some things to bribe the guards and the functionary prisoners, uh, smuggling messages, medicaments. Uh, many escapes wouldn't be possible without uh, prisoners who escape receiving help from the local population. So in, the, in this context, uh, there is, uh, on one hand, a local tragedy and destruction of life. And when we talk about commemoration today, we are talking about the completely new villages around the, the the area because all those villages during the war were destroyed. Uh, of course, the town of Oshvinchim is a little bit different story because the town itself was not destroyed, but the the change of people after the war is a it's another story that we do not have time to cover. But there was structural uh, help uh, organized, and again, of course, we can ask the question whether 1,500 people or 1,200 people is a lot or not. Many people were afraid. Um, uh, some people could be indifferent, but those 12 or 1,500 people is not five people. And we, we can observe that people out of their own like feeling of responsibility and, and moral need, uh, many of them didn't consider to, to be heroes. They simply did what, what was the human reaction at the time. And this is something which is this if we are trying to study the story of uh, uh, moral responsibility of bystanders, these are the, the stories that we need to study because we can see those very often simple, not very well, very well educated people who decide to do something. And uh, this do something is important because sometimes when I speak to young people, when we discuss this matter, um, people try to think very... Um, kind of very elevated ideas, uh, com com combating or preventing genocides, things that are very difficult and very um, distant to our lives. You know, when you are a teenager in high school, you do not really think, how can you prevent genocide? But this do something means that we need to find our level of responsibility because each of us can do something to another human being. And, and this is something... Uh, very, very important. And then when you ask about memory, uh, this is a, a very interesting process of, uh, on the one hand, shaping the need to create the memorial. There was a discussion uh, after the war in Poland, what to do with the site of the former camp. And there were some, and this discussion was a debate among intellectuals, journalists, many different people. Some people said that, that this place should be plaffed, should be erased because the evil that took place there was so enormous, but sur some survivors stayed at the site of the uh, former camp, started collecting the documents that the Germans didn't manage to burn, started collecting objects, um, uh, personal items that uh, remained from the victims and so on. And they were the, 
those people behind the idea that something should be done with the site. And thanks to them in 1947, which again, in this political context of the story of Europe after the war, is a horrible time of Stalinist totalitarianism, not only in Soviet Union, but also in Poland and many other countries in this region. But those people uh, wanted some kind of institution of memory to be created. And then in June, July 1947, the Auschwitz Memorial is created with all its challenges, ideolo ideological twists of the era of the communism. However, the institution was there and the core of the institution was there. And then when we talk about memory, we need to understand that the memory about Holocaust connected with Auschwitz uh, also later developed completely independently and during the time of the Cold War visiting uh, the Auschwitz Memorial, either from Israel or from the, the States or Western Europe, was very challenging, but the memory was growing. And the memory grew because of the, also because of uh, the role that Auschwitz took in the, uh, in this symbolic field of memory of the Holocaust, because uh, Auschwitz was a concentration camp, but at the same time an extermination center. And the concentration camp had many survivors who would talk about extermination and uh, this authenticity of voices could create this memory and then uh, finally in 1989 when communists collapsed and the site became accessible all those memories met at the site and led to many different types of conflicts but now um, over 75 years after the memorial was created and over 30 years after the collapse of the communism we are in a completely different world where building bridges between different memories that are located in Auschwitz is something that has been going on for a long time. So we live in a completely different era of memory. As I said, two very complex questions. I tried to give you just the kind of a very um, a layout of this, but uh, uh, both of these topics uh, can be discussed in, uh, you know, in separate uh, lectures, programs, discussions. And, and and of course, both of these topics have received books addressing them just individually. And and Pavel, you've given us a really thoughtful and and informed, very well informed, and uh, and uh, sophisticated understanding of these two issues. To at least begin to talk about them, I think the question that we we should close on, and the question that probably follows from everything you've said, is what do you think in your sixteen years uh, in this role? What do you think uh, people are learning, those who come to visit? And what do you think we should learn that we're not learning? I do hope that people who visit the memorial, but also meet us in different forms through exhibitions, social media, books and films. First of all, I, I do hope that people learn about all those different memories when we talk about Auschwitz. And coming to the memorial is very often getting from the level of, of a very ab abstract symbolic place to the level of the geography of the camp, what existed where, what were the connections between the two camps, what things happened in Auschwitz I, in Birkenau. So uh, learning some kind of complexity also on this geographical level, but also factually. However, I, I do hope that uh, we can get from this warning when we talk about how people can get motivated to become a perpetrator, what is the power of ideology that people can use this as a warning in our life today to be more aware 
of the existence of these ideologies, to be more aware that we all have a choice and we can all make a difference. And, um, you know, when we look at the story of Auschwitz, we can say that symbolically, and not only symbolically, it all started because there was a man who had a motivation, that his ideology that he coined, all the hatred that he started expressing with words, and of course I'm talking about out of Hitler, at some point pushed people to, do, to, to, do, to this horrible crimes. So individuals can make a difference and we can see populism and different ideologies in the words of uh, uh, politicians. In We saw it in history, we can observe it today, we will observe it in the future. But uh, trying to understand how this mechanism work can be something, we can be more immune and we can start understanding where populism starts addressing us and tries to take us over and poison us with this ideology. But, uh, but I do hope that one question that will remain in people I meet, for example, at the memorial is this question, if individuals can make a difference, what can I do today to make our world a little bit better place? And what is my responsibility in this world we live in? Because each of us can make a difference, find motivation to simply do something good to another human being. And with this drops of goods, maybe we can turn it into a river, a sea, an ocean that can make a difference on a more global level. We need to understand that individuals can do something and it doesn't have to be something very big and uh, something very distant and something very difficult for us, but we can start small and then other people can join and uh, amazing and great thing can happen. That's a beautiful and very powerful metaphor. Zachary, you visited Auschwitz and had the, the uh, good fortune of being able to walk through with Pavel to, to learn about it from him. Um, what did you learn? You knew a lot about the topic already. What did you learn that you didn't know before? I think it's very <clears throat> easy as an American to see World War II um, and the defeat of Nazism and, and fascism as a sort of triumphal story. And as Americans, we often focus in that context on Normandy and the D-Day landings. Um, but I think being at Auschwitz, uh, not just at Auschwitz, but also uh, learning about uh, the effects of the war on uh, the area of Poland uh, that Auschwitz is in, shows how devastating uh, the war was for so many and shows that the center of the war was this sort of senseless death murder, destruction, that, uh, that, that this hateful ideology released. Um, and I think it's worth reflecting uh, on the, the, the terrible power uh, and, uh, and scale uh, of murder that occurred. Um, and I think it's important that we, as we think about our own history as Americans, um, but also as, as Brits or Germans or Poles or, or, or Russians or that we we think of we think of the um, the, the, this uh, crime as one of the central stories, and I think just building on that, Zachary, and, and the really wonderful insights from Pavel today. I mean, I think the Holocaust is unique. We shouldn't believe or misuse the term to say that there are Holocausts elsewhere, but there are elements of the Holocaust, and Pavel has been so eloquent on this. There are elements of the hate and the ideology that, although different continue to live on. 
And um, we have to, I think, use this history. It's a very difficult history, but use this history to also help us recognize the elements of it, the uh, echoes of it that we see in our world, and uh, ask ourselves hard questions. The questions we've talked about here are, are we analyzing these things open, with open eyes? Uh, what are we doing? I think, as Pavel said, um, most of us are not in a position, none of us are really in a position to change the world overnight. But we can all make uh, a difference and we can all ask ourselves if we're making things better or worse. Uh, we do live in a world now with rising anti-Semitism in many of our societies, certainly in the United States, uh, by every measure, uh, rising anti-Semitism. And we see um, extreme violence all around us, not the same as the Holocaust, but not entirely different either. Uh, when we visited uh, Poland this uh, summer, uh, we were actually quite close to, to Ukraine, right, Zachary? I mean, and, and there we're, we're seeing not a Holocaust, but we're certainly seeing hatred and genocide um, before our eyes. And so uh, we all do have to ask ourselves what, what we can do. Um, I encourage all of our all of our listeners, all of you, to to really go and visit Auschwitz-Birkenau if you haven't yet, and if you have, uh, as as I had before this visit, to visit again, um, because there is so much to learn. And as Pavel said so well, uh, there's no substitute for seeing it with your own eyes, for walking walking the platform where the uh, Jews were were taken off the trains, uh, seeing the crematoria, uh, and and learning the uh, the process. And we want to encourage everyone to donate uh, to the museum uh, as well. Uh, Pavel, how, how can our listeners uh, donate to the museum? The easiest thing is to uh, enter our website, uh, auschwitz.org, and find the donate button at the top of the, uh, the page. So this can be done very easily. But what I can also encourage people to do, because uh, while I do believe that everyone should visit the memorial, I know that for many it is um, very difficult uh, because it's far, it is a challenge. Um, right now in the United States, people can see the exhibition Auschwitz Not Long Ago, Not Far Away. It is in Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, but it will uh, visit several other uh, cities in the United States. But the Auschwitz Memorial also provides a lot of information online with the virtual tour panorama.auschwitz.org, with podcast.auschwitz.org, you can listen to our podcast. We also have online lesson, lesson.auschwitz.org. Uh, I encourage everyone to take a look because we uh, try to create those educational materials so that everyone could have a possibility to see. And uh, I can already invite you to something that will be launched soon, the online live guided tours. Uh, this is the project that we built, uh, was created out of the pandemic experience when the site was in a lockdown. And we are now finishing uh, creating an app. And through this app, again, it will not be the same, but it will allow people sitting anywhere in the world to connect live with uh, one of our educators and being guided live with a possible interaction. So if you have a chance, do come and visit, do revisit but we also use this global technology uh, online and offline to bring the history of Auschwitz to all those who are interested. Absolutely. And, and Pavel, you're doing pioneering work on this, you and your, and your team. Um, and it's important for all of us to um, reach out to understand this story, but also to share it with others. 
uh, to share it with family members, with neighbors. Uh, this is everyone's history, whether you're Jewish or not, whether you're Polish or not. This is everyone's history. And it's vital, as I think Pavel has made clear for all of us to understand the world we're in today. Uh, Pavel Sawiski, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for all you do to bring this history to millions of people every year. Thank you, Pavel. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Zachary, for your moving poem, as always, and your excellent questions. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Coutini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.